Eric Krusen of the German Dances joins the antidote. Good to have you with us, Eric. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Dave. The music of the German Dances has been described as indie rock, art rock, even pop. For someone coming in with no knowledge of your band, what kind of label would you give it? Uh, I think any of those would be fine. Rock sounds the least pretentious, so perhaps I would go with that. But maybe indie rock to narrow it down just a little bit. But there is a pop aspect to your music. Oh yeah, absolutely. And with this album and the EP that came before it in particular, I was going for that. It seems weird, but it was really only now that I'm in my late 20s that I'm really starting to get pop. <laughs> uh, I- which is strange. When I was younger, I really just like experimental music. And now, I guess from a lyrical point of view, I'm sort of seeing that you can do some pretty interesting things if you just add choruses. So yeah, I would agree. There's certainly a pop element to the new album. And I think that's the oddest part about the music of the chairman dances. Because, you know, you typically think of pop music as being these lame boy meets a girl love songs. But here, your band goes deep. I mean, bringing in influences from history and literature. I find that really unusual. Or is that just me? No, thank you. Uh, I mean, it's a big compliment. Yeah, I think sometimes people are confused by us in that respect. But I've been getting good feedback about the album, even critically. So uh, I'm happy that they're happy. I do think that there is somewhat of a strange reception of why isn't this person talking about um, sort of amorous love. Though I like that too, so I'm open to all things. So the next album is going to be a love album. (laughs) You know, well, so one of the influences for this was actually the Magnetic Fields 69 Love Songs. There was one one thing I was listening to before the album and getting really excited about. So, you know, you can do anything and make anything interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if I made you know, an amorous love album that it would sound like a Taylor Swift song. But I think it can be done well. Absolutely. I want to take you back a little bit. In 2013, the Chairman Dances covered the Joni Mitchell song Blonde in the Bleachers. I thought it was an interesting choice, you know, with it speaking about the life of a rock artist. She also sort of fits with your band by, I'm not sure about if she was always totally understood. What is it about her music that attracted you? Yeah, Joni's music is is interesting. Um, it always seemed much more self-reflective than some of the other music, I guess by people of her stature, because she is just so well-known and so beloved. And I only know really a, a small portion of her music. But that song in particular, I just found really interesting because, you know, she's hanging around with all of these sort of big name rock people, uh, David Crosby. And I think that song might be about David Crosby. I could be wrong. Um, and so she's writing from this woman's perspective, which is rare at that time. And then she's writing about how women are just sort of like thrown around. I mean, that's interesting. Even in, when we think of hippie culture, we tend to think of, you know, oh, the genders were equal, but they sort of weren't. So I guess what attracted to me to that song is just her honesty, um, sort of the candid nature of the song and these ideas of power and image and rock and roll status and fame and fandom. There's, there's lots of stuff going on in this, in this pretty short song that's also pretty intricate musically as well. 
The Chairman Dances had Daniel Smith as producer for your last two releases. I'm going to be diplomatic here and call him unusual because <laughs> of the music he created with the band Danielson. Some people would just call it peculiar. How did his production work fit into the sound of the Chairman Dances? Yeah, Daniel, I don't think he would be offended at all if you called his music peculiar uh, <laughs> to his face. I love Daniel so much and working with him. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Daniel has worked with all sorts of people who are in all sorts of genres. He recorded the last Me Without You album, which sort of doesn't make sense at all if you think about, you know, Danielson and then compare it to Me Without You. Oh, I um, would have said it was a perfect comparison. <laughs> really? Oh, oh, just because they're both strange, but in different ways. They're both quirky in, in their own sense. That's true. Um, and I guess we're quirky, too, in, in a different way. But working with him was such a joy. He has such a good ear that somehow can cross lots of different genres. Really, my, my favorite Sufjan album is still probably Seven Swans, which is the one that Daniel produced and um, Daniel's on it and his sisters are all on it. I guess as soon as I knew that Daniel lived somewhat near me, he lives in South Jersey and I, I live in Philadelphia, I thought, oh, wow, this would be so great if I could work with him. And I sent him an email and I was almost that email slash fan letter to him <laughs> uh, asking, you know, would you do this? And he sent me back just a sentence saying, yeah, I would, would absolutely be interested in, in this. Thanks for your note. Uh, give me a call. Love, Daniel. And I called him the next week. I went over to his house and his studio, uh, checked it out, and we, we decided to work together. As simple as all that. Yeah. <laughs> On one of those albums, last year's, Samantha says, it's an interesting recording because it's almost as if you're writing a novel. You're taking the protagonist, Samantha, through a pretty extensive character arc. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it does sort of have that feel to it. I'm glad that that's how you feel. Because um, when you're doing sort of pop songs or rock songs or whatever, um, you're leaving out a whole lot in a way that a novel would not usually. In opera, for instance, you would have the songs and then you would have these explanatory sections. Or in Broadway, that they would just be spoken. Um, but I had to you know, leave a lot out. So I'm glad that in the end, was sort of a, a narrative that you could understand that makes me that makes me happy. <laughs> I suppose that concept theme is carried on with much of your music. You know, on past releases, you had Michael and the Prophetess and the Death of Samuel Miller. Okay, so you got to give us the truth here, Eric. Are you really not a musician, but you're really a stifled novelist? Huh. Uh, so I was always a musician first and foremost since the time I was a kid. And it wasn't until college and then when I was in grad school that I really started to love literature. And I guess I should say the music that I was just sort of going towards, this was when I was in, in college, you know, Leonard Cohen, um, Bob Dylan, um, and even a lot of jazz greats like John Coltrane were inspired by writing. I. Yeah, I guess in that way, I sort of leaned that way. And I'm constantly trying to become a better writer. My, my favorite music is, uh, is music where the lyrics are sort of at the fore. And if a song doesn't have good lyrics, it's sort of useless in a way. So I am always trying to improve uh, in that sense. 
but stifled novelist i'll take that title that's that's fine <laughs> well since you were talking about literature that covers a lot of ground what type of interest do you have so uh, my favorite writer who definitely had an influence on maybe all, everything i've done is marilyn robinson i love her essays i love her novels I love her thoughts and her interviews. She's so gracious, and she just exudes everything, I guess, that I want to do. Um, and I don't think my work sounds like hers at all. She's just a great role model, I thought, for me as an artist. And I try to, when I'm working on something, think about who's going to read it, what the effect is going to be. I remember reading once in an interview, Marilyn says, you know, to always respect your reader and assume that they're smarter than you. And so I always try to do that. I feel like sometimes music, if it's more pop uh, or more commercial pop, I should say, and I have no problems with commercial pop, but I feel like it sort of assumes that you are dumb. Um, and I never want to do that. And so whenever I am appealing to literature, it's not in a way that I want to come off as uh, snooty or elitist. It's more just that I want to respect everyone who's listening you do have a lot of depth in the songs from the chairman dances. So it really leads me to wonder how many potential fans you might leave behind because of the song depth. Sure. Yeah, that's absolutely a concern. Um, I feel, and I could be wrong, but that was one of the appeals of me kind of going in more of a pop direction. Um, because that way, so you have as sort of a first layer, you have this music which you may or may not like, but is hopefully catchy and not in a vain way, but uh, sort of a nuanced sort of musical way. Mm -hmm. And so that's your first layer. And so if, if you like that, then we've succeeded. Um, and then I do want to include these sort of layers underneath because that's, that's what I find interesting about um, characters or about history. So with a new album, there's this lyric, okay, but now who is singing this? Okay, Fannie Lou Hamer singing this, this black woman. Um, who is marginalized, oh, what is that, what we, she just said in her mouth, what are the ramifications of that? Um, so there are hopefully these different layers, and as you choose, you know, maybe you're someone who doesn't listen to lyrics, that's fine, then you, you just stick with the top layer, but, you know, there's more, there's more if you keep digging, hopefully. Then if that's the case, what kind of an audience do you find that you're drawing to your shows? I guess... It's been fairly mixed, which I think is a good thing. Uh, we just recently played, actually, at the organization that Dorothy Day started. We got an invitation when they heard the song that we wrote for her. Uh, so this is in New York City. So if you know Dorothy and she started this, The Catholic Worker, it's this place who takes care of the marginalized. Um, so you'd expect a lot of sort of wacky people to show up at their salons. And a lot of wacky people showed up at the salon, which was great. You know, there's lots of banter on their end. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience for me because usually they might not hear rock music. Uh, but I guess what I'm saying is that I found that in some ways the audience doesn't matter so much because everyone is, you know, a thinking, feeling human. <laughs> so I'm more concerned as a songwriter about just getting the music out there and letting different people hear it and seeing what they, what they say to me. Because generally the reaction has been positive, but any sort of criticism is, is always helpful for me, too. You've already been doing this for quite a number of years now and bringing out annual releases. Yeah, um, I do 
really love to write and to record. Uh, I would imagine that the next album, just because of it being expensive to record, will probably be not on the yearly mark from this last one, I would imagine, but I still want to write as much as possible um, and then just sort of throw away what I feel doesn't isn't up to snuff, which I've been doing the past few years anyway, but sort of even more so to continue with the self-editing. Do you ever feel like you're throwing away children when you're casting off songs? Uh, yes and no. Um, it is a sort of an adult thing you need to do to, to just be able to distance yourself from what you've said or done and say, maybe I like that lyric, maybe I like that melody, but as a whole I don't, or maybe I can just edit this. Um, they're just you know decisions you have to make, and I try not to make it too, well, everything's personal, but... I try not to become attached or call them children. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I really come to enjoy your discography, but I personally feel that your latest release, Time Without Measure, tops everything else that Chairman Dances has done. Oh, good. I feel that way too, but I'm glad. (laughs) Well, you've pulled in these biographical vignettes of Christians who were social radicals many people might take it a step further and actually consider them troublemakers or agitators. What brought around the concept? Sure. So um, it came very naturally. The first two songs I wrote for the record were the song for uh, Augustine and then Dorothy Day and Peter Moran. Well, all three were people who I had really loved and studied And when it came time for me to write songs after the last album, for whatever reason, I just sat down and wrote songs for them. And then after I did that, I thought, oh, I guess I'm writing about Christians. And so then the next maybe year was me trying to figure out who I wanted to include, um, you know, because representation was important. And then what what that was going to say, because this is sort of its own narrative in a way. And so, yeah, the, the people I did pick or who made the list final list, many of whom are agitators, uh, absolutely troublemakers, because I think that's inherent to sort of the Christian proclamation. But yeah, I guess it just reflects my personality and what I'm interested in. So this makes you an agitator and a troublemaker also? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not really. But I guess guess what I should say is, I don't think that that it should be a weird thing to stand up for someone else's rights, even if you do it in a in a quiet way. Um, I'm actually just reading this book now by Anna Carter Florence, and she's talking about these uh, these women preachers in the 18th, mostly, century. And this one woman, Sarah Osborne, was teaching slaves how to write, and she was this very poor, very meek woman. Um, but she was doing this sort of radical thing at her time. So you can be radical and still you know, wear collared shirts and still get along with your mother. And earlier I was talking about some of the depth of your music. On the song Kitty Ferguson, you compare her writings on the association of religion and science to those of the atomic physicist Neil Bohr. That's a wild association, and <laughs> I really wonder sometimes how broad your reading is. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I'm not so smart, especially not with science, but uh, I had come across Kitty in this this book um, that was, I guess it's it's scientists talking about religion, scientists who who are religious themselves, 
And so sometimes it could get a little navel-gazing. This is a collection of essays. Um, but I had read about Niels Bohr in there and the ramifications of his thought. So Niels said essentially, and this really angered Einstein, uh, they had a, a series of discussions where they sort of disagreed with one another to further science. And Neil said, you know, Al, um, you can't really know anything in and of itself. You're always knowing from the human perspective, which causes a lot of problems. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I sort of did make the leap with Kitty, who was also saying these things. Kitty would say that God says, you know, seek me. God does not say seek evidence of me. So there's only so much that's that's knowable from us. And, you know, reflecting scripture, God does not think like us, you know, like I do not think as you think. And I found that very compelling and weirdly sort of consoling as a person who sort of, you know, thinks about time, thinks about uh, space and humanity and meaning and gets a little, you know, confused. <laughs> It's interesting also because, of course, there's always been this divide, historical divide, I guess I should say, between Christianity and science. I think that's obviously fallen away to a large degree, but there is still some of that divisiveness between the two. Yeah, and it's sad and, and misinformed. I would say, you know, there are the fundamentalist Christians and then there are the fundamentalist scientists, neither of whom do a lot of reading um, you know, most of the early, well, most medieval scientists were also Christians, <laughs> uh, or Jews or Arabs and especially mathematicians. So there doesn't need to be a sort of dichotomy there. You know, unfortunately we read about, you know, a lot of sort of closed minded Christians talking about this, but there's unfortunately a lot of closed minded scientists as well who aren't helping matters, um, like Steven Pinker and a lot of the new atheists who, in the opinion of most scientists, aren't really scientists themselves. Um, I guess I would call them philosophers, but then I'm being generous. <laughs> Earlier on, I mentioned about Joni Mitchell. You also bring in another big name, and you had brought him up earlier too. Bob Dylan comes about on the song Augustine from Time Without Measure. A really interesting track. I'd really like you to explain how the song developed and the perspective in which it was written. Sure. Yeah, that is possibly my favorite song on the album. It's pretty sort of fun in tone, I hope. Uh, it's not as serious as the others. Uh, it came about, I remember I was falling asleep and I was thinking of that Bob Dylan song, which I hadn't heard in years, uh, that's called I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. And I thought, oh, yeah, so it'd be kind of funny if I responded to Bob Dylan as if I were St. Augustine. And I wrote down what's essentially the first line of the song and then was tired and went back to bed. And then I woke up and I finished the song in the next morning. But it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek response back to Bob Dylan. But I think it works as its own song. It's, uh, I, I get a kick out of it, at least. Well, you talk about how quickly you wrote that. Is songwriting an easy thing for you, or is it an ordeal? It's not. It's easy, and it's not. It can involve a lot of editing. Um, I don't know if other artists feel this way, too, but I have one visual artist friend who says that she does. Um, you always sort of feel like you're on 
when you're walking down the street even, you sort of can't get out of the mindset of, you know, I'm thinking about music, even if you're not humming a tune. Uh, so you're sort of always bringing things in or making them a part of yourself. Uh, and for this album, too, I was researching a ton. So there's sort of like the prep time is what I'm saying. And then, you know, you journal and you write and you practice writing and you try to get better at your instrument. And then you sit down and write a song. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of time in there. But yeah, the, the but the song themselves, if you're if you're just looking at that. Yeah, Augustine came pretty quickly. Uh, a song like Jimmy Carter took a little longer. You know, you never know why sometimes something just isn't fitting in with the melody, right? A certain lyric. So you might change that. Um, you know, some, some parts of the songs took a little while. The end of Kitty Ferguson, for instance, I remember uh, working on the chord structure for a while because it was kind of intricate. Um, even if it takes a really long time and sometimes my wife will say, oh, you've been playing this for so long. Um, it is always really fun for me. It is always a joy, which is why I do it, which is crazy to some people. But um, it is one of the most fun and fulfilling things that I have ever done. And I love it so much. So your wife is really accommodating and she doesn't make you wear headphones constantly like my wife does? <laughs> uh, when I'm listening to music, yes, then I, I do wear headphones. But I am also the same way. As much as I am noisy, I do not like it when other people are loud. So I am equally unaccommodating. <laughs> That's when you need those headphones, just to block out the noise from the other people. Correct. Absolutely. Another song that you've brought around on Time Without Measure is looking at gay rights from a Christian perspective on the song Peter Gomes and Nancy Cohen. Was this an important issue for you to bring up on the album? Yeah, um, representation was very important for me. Um, it's interesting. So I, I grew up Christian. You know, I was baptized as an infant. Um, but I think maybe a lot like people who are my age today, sort of youngish, I'm 30, uh, there was sort of an awakening of some kind, because now it's not a cultural thing to be religious, it's the opposite of that, so you do have to sort of make a decision. And when I was having the spiritual awakening, it just happened that most of the people who guided me um, that I did not know are gay. Uh, so yeah, I did want to represent them in, in some way. I think the reason for that is that God usually calls those who are marginalized um, God gives comfort to those who seek it and who need it most. Um, I didn't know Peter before I started writing the album. I didn't know most of these people, though, I should say. Um, so I wrote about him not because he was gay, because he actually hated talking about his sexuality, because it, in fact, meant nothing to him because he was celibate. Not that he did that because he thought having sex would have been a sin for him. It was just a personal decision he made. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I read Peter and I was really moved by his writing and I was really uh, moved by what his colleague Nancy had written. He had baptized Nancy. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll write this song for Peter. Um, if it doesn't work, then I'll, I'll write about someone else. Because um, I, I had wanted to write about William Stringfellow, who's a big hero of mine. Um, but the song with Peter, I think, and I hope works. And at that point, I thought I have enough white men, so I didn't write about Stringfellow. But <laughs> And that's why you had to include Peter, who's black. Right. Well, I had written about Peter first. Man, this album was hard in that way because I had this collection of songs. I had written about other black Americans 
so I wrote the song um, for the parents of Trayvon Martin that I wanted to include, but I just didn't think it worked as well as a song. But I wanted them to be represented, so leaving them out was hard. I should say I wasn't engaging in tokenism here. I wasn't just trying to get a black voice in there. Um, and of course, there are others too, Fanny Lehamer. But um, but yeah, I did want to represent these people, which is why I, I made myself read a whole lot so that I could hopefully give their stories um, justice. I mean, on the album, the Chairman Dances included so many significant people. Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, Cesar Chavez, Jimmy Carter, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They were all ones that made it on the album. But who were some of the other ones that didn't make the final cut? Ooh, well, and there, and there were some that I also sort of threw away the song before it was done. <laughs> Um, but I remember early on, I, I wasn't sure that it would be just modern voices. So I was working on a song for John Woolman, who was an 18th century Quaker. Um, I had written a song for Marilyn Robinson uh, that didn't make it. Um, uh, there was also a Japanese voice who I left off who had um, written The Bells of Nagasaki. There were a good handful that I, that I left off. And any regrets with that? Um, no, I mean, it was a hard decision, but I think it was ultimately the right decision. I, I think the songs on the album are better, and I would have rather had an album that sounded better than one that, that didn't. I've got a final thought to close this conversation up, Eric. What do you think is going to dominate the music scene in the future? Is it going to be fluffy pop, or are we going to have songs with substance? Um, I think we're going to get both. Is, is my opinion. It's interesting to me, sort of as the music industry is dying, <laughs> um, there's still this sort of desire for pop music for and not the kind of pop music that I write. Um, but, you know, fluff, if you will, candy floss kind of stuff. So I think that will always be there. Because in a way, you know, when you're a kid, that can be exciting, even though it wasn't exciting for me because I listened to the Beatles. But um, so I think that will always be there. Uh, but I think as the music industry sort of fragments more and more, you'll get these different voices coming in, which I think is ultimately a very good thing for music as a whole. There's always that talk about the music industry dying, but isn't really it just evolving and changing? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I guess when I say music industry, I just mean the sort of big behemoth thing. Right. Um and that is going away. Um, but you're right. It is changing in, in ways that are scary. Even, um, <laughs> sorry, not to end on a foreboding note, but uh, when I was talking to Daniel Smith about this, you know, Daniel runs a label and he's been really nervous because, you know, with streaming, less people have been buying even the really great albums on his label. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think people are always going to be moved to write music. It might turn into something more like, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, when people considered music sort of an artisan thing. And if it is going to be an artisan thing, then maybe we can, you know, make money from it somehow, <laughs> which would be nice. Uh, so I think it'll, it'll be changing, but I'm going to still feel compelled to write music either way. And I'm sure lots of other people will. Since we talked about finances, you got to tell people where do they buy the music of the chairman dances? Ah, well, yes, I'd be very grateful if you did. You can buy it at our website. Uh, which is just thechairmandances.com, and we're on Bandcamp and all, all of those other sites. Eric, a real pleasure having you here on The Antidote. Thanks for joining us. 
Oh, thank you very much, Dave. I love the antidote, and I'm very happy to be part of it.